Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion of the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. At the end of another tumultuous Trump-driven week, all eyes were focused on the federal courthouse in Washington, D.C., in the expectation that the January 6th grand jury sitting there might soon vote out a new indictment. But then, attention shifted abruptly to the Mar-a-Lago case in Florida and an unanticipated superseding indictment. The new indictment added an additional defendant, a new and important document that Trump brought with him from the White House, and a detailed account of a ham-handed and mob-like obstruction scheme to try to delete surveillance footage that Team Trump knew the DOJ wanted. In the memorable words of the new defendant, Carlos de Oliveira, the boss wants the tape deleted. Now, there are two defendants in the Mar-a-Lago case indicted as co-conspirators with Trump. Both of them are relatively low-level actors whose conduct Trump directed, and both of them seem tailor-made for cooperation with the department. Instead, they are opting to face significant criminal exposure and remain loyal to the boss, for now anyway as well as letting the pack that Trump set up in the wake of the 2020 election pay for their lawyers. The addition of De Oliveira, who is scheduled to be arraigned today, further diminishes the likelihood of completing the Mar-a-Lago trial before the November 2024 election. In fact, the case that Smith is about to bring against Trump in the District of Columbia may well turn out to be the first to market. All of this plays against the backdrop of a developing presidential election where Trump looks very likely to have sewn up the nomination before any of the trials get underway. And the game-changing possibilities of the upcoming trials are far from certain. That all sets the stage for possibly the most important trial in U.S. history to play out alongside a presidential election with huge significance for the rule of law and the American experiment. To take us through these twists and turns and analyze their implications for our royal political life and the coming election, we welcome three of the country's most prominent commentators, all, I'm very pleased to say, regular guests of Talking Feds. And they are Laura Coates, Laura is a CNN anchor and CNN's chief legal analyst, as well as host of The Laura Coach Show on Sirius XM. She served as a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ during the Bush and Obama administrations. She's the author of two books, most recently, Just Pursuit, A Black Prosecutor's Fight for Fairness. Welcome back, Laura Coates. Thank you. Hello. Greg Sargent an opinion columnist at the Washington Post covering national politics. He previously wrote for Talking Points Memo, New York Magazine, and the New York Observer. He is the author of the book, An Uncivil War, Taking Back Our Democracy in an Age of Trumpian Disinformation and Thunderdome Politics. Could I just pause for a moment and really commend that Thunderdome politics phrase. Man, what a, it really hits home. Anyway, welcome um, back, Greg Sargent. Thank you. And master of the uh, well-turned phrase, Rick Wilson, 
a political consultant and political writer, a lifelong Republican. He was an early critic of Donald Trump and a co-founder of the Lincoln Project, dedicated to defending democracy and defeating Trump. Rick also co-hosts, along with Tara Setmeyer, the Breakdown Podcast, which I can say from experience is one of the most lively and informative political podcasts out there. Since leaving politics, he's published two books, Everything Trump Touches Dies. Did you coin that phrase? Everything Trump Touches Dies? If I didn't coin it, I own it now. (laughs) Exactly. And the running against the devil. I'm coming up fourth by far in the writer uh, sweepstakes here. I'm the one non-book writer, so I'll have to limp ahead with hopefully a couple well-turned questions. So, Man, what a week for Donald Trump. Just yesterday, everybody looking to D.C., and there was a major movement, both in that case, but also, of course, the Mar-a-Lago case. Let's let's start with the meeting yesterday between Trump lawyers and the DOJ for the 1-6 case. Do we have any visibility into what the Trump lawyers argued, whether they made any headway? Or was it just sort of checking a box? You know, the reporting um, at CNN had been that this was not a meeting where their goal was to try to persuade them that the facts that they had or that they alleged to have were inaccurate. It was more along the lines of this would be bad for the country. If you pursue this, it would be bad for the country. What would it say to other nations and, of course, about ourselves, which is such a really fundamentally flawed premise, although I understand why you'd want to try something, not knowing what the facts obviously might be or what they have within the grand jury testimony. But you can flip that question so easily on its head, can we not? And suggest, well, what would it say if you were aware of criminal allegations and grand jury subpoenaed evidence might actually confirm the allegations? What would it say if you turned a blind eye and said, you know what, as long as you've got the title candidate, then it will always be bad for the country for someone to pursue any action against you. And so if that was the extent of, um, as the reporting seems to indicate, the goal, that's very telling in terms of what they perceive as the risk of indictment overall, because that sums up. I'm not here to try to change your mind, just to appeal to a greater democratic good. Yeah, just adding to that point, I suspect that if and when the indictment comes down, that a lot of the international coverage, which, by the way, I think will be really worth looking at, will actually show that the view from abroad is that this shows that the rule of law is holding up in the United States. As you probably all know, it's really not all that uncommon for politicians and even former leaders in other countries to face justice. And so we're a bit of an outlier in that way. So it's kind of ironic that they'd make an appeal like that, I think. There's another level of irony, too. The way Trump put it was, this would further harm our country. You know, basically, I burnt it to the ground. And if you now go after me, you you burn the cinders and embers or whatever. The notion that he doesn't mention the sort of origins of the problem that would now be aggravated were he to be indicted. And just leaning into that even more, I mean, if we separate, and obviously it's difficult sometimes to fully compartmentalize each different opportunity for legal jeopardy that he is now facing— 
But if the meeting has to do with a perception that he might be charged with regard to the conduct leading up to and including January 6th, pre-election, post-election, certainly that date, the suggestion that you're going to appeal to the minds of prosecutors and say, it would be bad for democracy if you prosecuted somebody who is possibly going to be connected with a kind of a coup on a democracy and the obstruction of an official proceeding to prevent the peaceful transition of power, that in and of itself seems absurd. If you think about the other aspect of it and you say, hey, it'd be bad for the country if you were to prosecute somebody who has, as the allegation said, and of course there is the presumption of innocence that everyone still maintains, but if it's bad for the country to prosecute somebody who had that level of access to classified information, supposed to be only for the, the five eyes, and either withheld it, disseminated it, tried to destroy evidence of having kept it or displayed it, you've got, again, this dynamic at play that it must have made the prosecutors sort of scratch their heads and say, which part of this might be bad for the country? Rick, I wonder what you think. Smith is in the position of a U.S. attorney. I've been in a lot of these meetings. I always accepted ones when they were requested. They sometimes change my mind on little things. But I think, as Laura says, somebody sits across the table from me. I'm a career prosecutor, and they say it'll be bad for the country. Well, is this a legal argument? How how exactly do you want me to factor that in? There's nowhere to really bring this argument, but do you think it's something that somewhere, somehow, the federal government ought to be considering? You know, what harm will it do to the country, kind of an, on a um, Ford-Nixon model? Look, I mean, Harry, I think part of this that concerns me is the sense that Trump is saying this in that kind of mafioso way. That's a nice country you have there. It'd be a shame if something burned to the ground overnight. It'd be a real shame if something happened to that country there. What do you think? What do you think that could be? And in some ways, everything since January 6th, I think, with Trump has been seen at least tacitly through that through that mirror. That this is a guy who encouraged and promoted what became an attack on the U.S. Capitol, and now that he's facing some kind of justice or accountability or culpability in these things, his desire to get out of jail free on this is leading him to essentially have his lawyers make kind of tacit or not so tacit threats. And again, I do think there's probably some eye rolling there on the other side of the table when his lawyers say, we wouldn't want to upset democracy. We wouldn't want to do anything that would lead to chaos in our political system. This is the guy who is the sort of singularity of chaos in our political system for the last eight years. So I think... It's on brand for him to do this. I don't think you're going to see a lot of professional prosecutors. I'm not a lawyer, but I don't think you see a lot of people who've been through DOJ, who've been through big cases, who are going to say, yeah, you know, you get a pass because you're the president or the former president. That's not how the law thing works, or shouldn't be at least. Yeah. I mean, his previous statement, this echoed something he said in the public about a week ago that was like messianic is how he seemed to see himself as, you know. I'm bigger than the country, and if you bring this, the country will burn. It just a, a stunning kind of encapsulation of the Trump credo or brand. This will be indictment number three. The number four is soon to follow, and that's if you don't even count the false elector claims and remember the civil suits, etc. But just looking at the two DOJ cases, how would you compare the prosecutors would say righteousness, I say that for Laura's sake, but the sort of importance 
of this case with the Mar-a-Lago case? Does it hit home with the American people any differently? Should it, or does it all just blend together? Should I be totally honored that when you think of the word righteous, you think of me, or should I be totally insulted? I, I'm not. I'm not sure which one, but I'm going to go with it. Oh, you don't know that in the civil rights division up there on the seventh floor, they, we would talk about righteous. Is the case righteous? It's not just yeah. can you bring it, but is it righteous? So righteous, not in the sense of like a old Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, righteous, like a surfer dude. I love it. I'm I'm with you. It's just like, <laughs> this is a righteous case, Th- that kind of thing. I hear you. Um, you know, when you compare the two, just if when people are listening and thinking about the ways in which you would prove up a case, for example, of, hey, I've got a case that's about somebody possessing a document, being told they cannot being told that I want it back and they have no right to have it and them keeping it nonetheless. And also they're trying to pretend like they don't have it and destroy evidence of that. You can almost follow that, right? In an A, B, C, D, E, F, G sort of way. But then I take a step back and I say, when well, I've got a case where I don't know yet that we have a direct statement being made, but I get, a lot of people have the impression that they should do separate and distinct things in a coordinated way to try to make sure that on January 6th, various members of Congress would not actually abide by what they're supposed to do and one person in particular. And, you know, I'm, I'm a lot of innuendos being used at times and I've got phone calls in different jurisdictions. I mean, just in thinking and laying it out, it might still be quite clear to people in that through line, but it's a more circuitous route that you have to prove. And when you think about every time you add something on, you always think about, now, how am I going, what is it that a, a juror wants? They've got this sort of law and order principle about them where most people think because they've been watching law and order on reruns for decades, they think, oh, you know what? A crime is committed. Uh, assailant is identified. They've got a grand jury indictment trial and a verdict all within tightly 48 minutes so that Sam Watterson can walk down the steps of the courthouse. <laughs> That's a difficult proposition if you're trying to bring in all these things. And by the way, the first case we described just now in terms of classified docs, even for that, they asked for 21 days, I think, to even present it. So this is going to be difficult and complicated for a variety of reasons either way. It seems clear if you're talking just about how to communicate this stuff politically as opposed to legally, it seems pretty clear to me that the documents case is going to be a lot easier to explain to people, right? I mean, just think about the thumbnail versions of both. The documents case is Trump stole national security secrets and put members of the military and the country at risk. That's pretty straightforward, right? And a lot of people will sort of instinctually understand that's a deeply wrong thing to do, presuming he's, you know, found guilty of it. Whereas the January 6th thing is a little harder to explain to people. They've been bombarded by a year and a half of imagery of the rioters on January 6th. And I would think that, you know, the broad mainstream of the country is pretty horrified by the violence that broke out. Although on some level, I suspect that a lot of people, especially in the middle, feel on some level that there was no chance that anything like that could ever actually work, that it was really kind of a bunch of people acting out that Trump was a sore loser, and that there isn't that deep or an understanding of the fact that Trump actually fomented this violent riot in order to overturn an election outcome and seize power illegitimately. 
that will get even more muddled when the discussion starts about things like obstruction of an official proceeding, which is, you know, let's face it, that doesn't sound to the layperson's ear. It might not sound like the most serious crime. So, you know, I think in some ways the January 6th committee really succeeded in dramatizing the horrors of the event. But on some level, I really wonder whether how deeply it will sink in that Trump is, if he is, guilty of serious criminality there. All right, I'll chime in, but I'm interested in Rick's view because I think I am showing, I guess, my lawyerly or pointy-headed prejudice when, when I state the kind of counterpoint that you're right, both of you, that the narrative of Mar-a-Lago documents is pretty straightforward, but the conduct charged for January 6th is, to my mind, breathtaking and the most dramatic and pernicious assault on the rule of law and democracy by any president in our history. So maybe I'm answering a slightly different question from Greg, which is, you know, how will the people see it? Will they absorb it, the sort of constitutional horror of it? But if we had to judge him guilty for one or the other, and we could only choose one, I would choose this, hoping, of course, that the DOJ has the goods, and, I, you know, I believe they will, because there's something that almost feels like, oh, just part of who he is with the document stuff, but this as a kind of core legacy of what he did to the country, I think is just indelible. Look, I think the advantage, if you're looking at it in the broad sense of what's best for the country in the end, like invert the argument Trump was making earlier about what's best for the country. I I would argue what's best for the country in the end, no one saw the documents case happen. It may be more open and shut, But there's the frenzy of the visible attack in the minds of most Americans about January 6th. There is a way that that was the sort of apotheosis of Trump's authoritarianism, of his contempt for the law, the Constitution, American traditions and elections, and a gamble he made that led to violence that we all have to wake up in the morning and go, he could have succeeded. That could have happened. If they'd killed Mitt Romney or Nancy Pelosi or found one person had killed them, Congress would have frozen, the election would not have been certified, we'd be in the worst crisis imaginable. And so if he can be punished for January 6th, I think it has a more salutary effect for the country than the documents. Because, you know, plenty of idiots can steal classified documents, and and plenty do. And they get in trouble for it, and they go to prison for it, and they should. But almost no one's in a position to encourage and motivate and direct something that becomes an assault and attack on the Capitol, on our elections, and on the fundamental you know, transition of power element of our democracy. So I'd like to see him go down for both. But if I had to pick one, I'd pick the January 6th prosecution just because of the, the level of consequence of it if it had succeeded. Worst case scenario, if Trump leaked our most classified piece of documentation he had to Iran or Russia or whomever, it would suck. It'd be horrible. It'd be very bad. But that's happened to us before way too many times to count, even at his level, even things that are more sensitive than probably what came across his desk, knowing how the intelligence community managed him. But it was a turn of phrase that I've, I've really adopted. 
that an unpunished coup is a training exercise. If I had to pick one and bet it all on one, I'd go after that one. It's fascinating to hear it, the perspectives because I try to get into the mindset of, say, a, a Jack Smith and thinking, how does he consider both of this? Is it kind of like a parent who says, I love both my kids and I can't tell you why, but for different reasons? Or is it something where these two cases are on a very different plane than, say, perhaps a more distinctive comparison in the Manhattan DA's indictments about other issues? I think that the concept of what happened on January 6th can sometimes ring theoretical to people, which can be a disconnect for jurors to actually evaluate because people have this idea in their minds of, you know, America, although it has a relative infancy compared to other nations, we really have believed and bought into this principle that we are indestructible in some respects in that way. So people have this for better or for worse, notion of a democracy or, or a public, if you can keep it, this assumption is it'll always be kept. But I will say it because we don't yet know the information on the documents and what it is that may have been provided or if it was at all. Remember, the indictment tracks not so much in the dissemination, but with the willful retention more than anything else in the conspiracy and obstruction. There is a scary proposition and argument to be made that the unknown and what could be out there might be all the more terrifying. These plans, I would assume, and I've you know never been a member of the military and revere the work that they and their bravery they have done, but I can imagine those who have advised a president in defense work and beyond, they're not coming up with a plan to attack a geopolitical enemy every day. It's not like every week it's edited in a Google Doc. The evergreen nature of things, I would suspect, makes it such that it can compromise a lot of relationships and intelligence and God forbid you go back to the drawing board on things. So because there's that sort of unknown, I can't quite um, determine the prioritization of these cases. They seem to be on, on very equal, albeit different footing. Okay. And I'll just note again that Greg, when we were talking, there's two different ways to think of it, how it will hit home to people. And the other reason that it's so righteous and important is the risk remain with the pending election that we were looking at some kind of really fundamental degradation of the American uh, experiment, it seems to me. And I let's assume the worst. And Rick was just saying as we were coming in, there's a non-zero chance of the worst and of Donald Trump winning the election. Scenario A, Really, really, really shitty, but in about 15 years, we're back to normal. Scenario B, the decline and fall of the American empire. We see 20 years from now that, that in fact, the great experiment has escaped our grasp and we're, we're in some kind of continuing authoritarian model. Any sense of that? It's a shorthand way of saying, how mammoth are the stakes of the presidential election in 2024? Well, obviously, immensely high. You just reminded me of something. I think Barack Obama said this somewhere publicly, yeah. that he thought that we could survive four years of Trump, but not eight years of Trump. Mm -hmm. uh, he said that somewhere publicly. But this was, you know, right when Trump had been elected uh, in 2016, just after that. And it occurred to me he hadn't even, you know, entertained the scenario where we get eight years, but they're sort of 
spread out right. between two two separate, you know, separated by four years in the middle. So I mean, which is kind of worse because it's got a revenge. I'm back retribution theme to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I don't want to sound like too, you know, normie or whatever, right? But a, a, mm-hmm. a lot does turn on what happens with Congress, right? If Congress, if one or both, cha- if Trump were to be, you know, elected, I think that it's unlikely, by the way, that he will yes be elected president. I wouldn't rule it out. Set that to the I side. It's pretty yeah. unlikely, though. And by the way, this goes back to the discussion we were having before. There is a real anti-MAGA majority in this country. It's a real existing thing. And, you know, that gets obscured by the way our press coverage works a lot of the time, which is very prone to sort of red wave spin and so forth and so on. Every two minutes, another red wave is coming. Democrats are always losing, except they won or outperformed in the last three national elections. Right. We're not in 2016 anymore. And I think that's a a hard fact for a lot of people to accept, but it shouldn't be. I mean, what happened was, improbably enough, Trump's effort to overthrow constitutional democracy mattered in in the last national election. We just saw it. It happened. And, you know, they can't make that disappear. People came out and voted and I was surprised by this too, by the way, but they virtually none of the prominent election denying MAGA candidates won their statewide offices, virtually none. Maybe, you know, DeSantis isn't even quite in that category. He sort of fudged it a little. But none of the real Trumpist, full-blown election-denying types who said that the election had been stolen from Trump, none of them won. And a lot of data seems to show that the attack on democracy was a key reason for this, along with Dobbs. And so... You know, to maybe tweak what I said before, it's possible that a prosecution for January 6th really does resonate for people. Look, I don't maybe this is a question I have for you guys, since you have experience in this field. But what does that timeline look like? So we have a vague sense of what the timeline is going to look like on the Mar-a-Lago case, right? That's starting in the spring. But what if, if there's a January 6th prosecution, do you guys have a sense of what that timeline looks like? How long a thing like that takes? How long his lawyers can delay it? That type of thing? Greg's exactly right. The election did turn on, in 2022 on democracy. In the beginning of the cycle, you know, Reed, Galen, and Stu Stevens and I were talking to a lot of prominent Democratic activists and money people, and they were, well, this election will be about prescription drug coverages and gas prices and inflation. And our numbers... And our pretty solid instinct was, this is about democracy. This is about whether you want to be in a country that has elections anymore. Because there are a lot of people, as Greg said, on the ballot from you know the Doug Mastrianos and the Kerry Lakes and the Mark Finchams who were promising to essentially go in and either reverse the 2020 election or to lay in wait for the 2024 election and throw it to Trump. So there was a pushback. There is a legitimate anti-MAGA majority in the country. It's real. It comprises, of course, you know, Democrats solidly, of course. And independents have gone from being behaviorally slightly Republican to behaviorally slightly more Democrat in the last couple of years. A lot of that is from Dobbs and January 6th. And Republicans, it is a growing number in the Republican base that are addressable they may not ever want to go and you know spend long nights having dinner with Joe Biden, but they may also be able to, you could convince them to hold their nose because they don't like the violence, they don't like the chaos, they don't like the country feeling lawless and and crazed. So, I mean, it, 
Weirdly, democracy shouldn't have to be on the ballot, but it's on the ballot in 22 and it succeeded as an issue. I think it's going to strongly be on it in 24, in part because as we've seen now, the president is starting to openly talk. They're not just running against Trump, they're running against the authoritarian post-small-D democratic MAGA movement. So I think Trump is enormously strong and enormously weak. He's the classic supervillain. He's got a weakness. And while he may be strong in some ways, I think he's gettable, especially if we keep this conversation about the kind of country we want to live in. This could be the last election if you have a a guy like a Trump or a DeSantis. And I don't think that's where Americans want to be. I find that fascinating, the idea of the supervillain that you mentioned and, and the way you structured it. I mean, just circling back to Greg's point from the former President Obama on what America would, could withstand, you know, I think that many Republicans, as you're hearing more and more in the press, so that old familiar phrase of, well, privately, many are saying this, but publicly, <laughs> others are saying that, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. You go, oh, okay, can the two actually meet at one point? Can you say what you want to say and mean to say? Is that asking too much <laughs> when this happens? But you get the sense that privately, you have many people hoping this will not be another four years of Trump. And then you have publicly, I mean, maybe the, the, or the private concern of, gosh, if this doesn't work out this time, what will the platform be? What will the definition and the way that we understand a, our party to be, or if you're a Democrat, how their party will be, or Republicans or independent, whatever it is, that's all part of the game of figuring out how to read these tea leaves. And while we're reading tea leaves in the indictment space and how long a trial might be, and incidentally, you know, you've got a March trial 2024 for the Manhattan DA, currently a May trial for the Florida one. Who knows in terms of the actual January 6th and Trump's team wants everything to go after the election for the reason he'd like to be successful in winning. And then, of course, get rid of all of the um, things that are happening. He's already said that he wants to fire, say, a special counsel as one of his actions if he were to become the president of the United States. We're reading those tea leaves. And I, I have a feeling that those who have that strange cognitive dissonance, I guess, between what they say privately and publicly are wondering if this does not work out, do we abandon all the things we thought the Trump base wanted? Do we abandon the so-called culture wars? Do we abandon the notion of weaponization of the government? Do we abandon the the platitude of they're really after me, after you trying to go through me. Like, what are the things that would be abandoned if this candidate were not successful? Because if he is really symbolic of something and the symbol is not successful, then the underlying substance goes away too, perhaps. It's a great point. And does it go away all at once? Does it erode? This is an episode or 10 in itself. I don't mm-hmm. want to um, neglect Greg's point. So let me just putting on my former U.S. attorney hat, say uh, the timing. Bad and getting worse. So first in Mar-a-Lago, you know, everyone, she chose May. That was about, that, that didn't impress me as a victory for the government, as some people said. She couldn't have put it much later, it seems to me. But now, just yet, we now have a new defendant. That means a new, got to get a new counsel. That means three kind, times the argument of one about problems with classified docs, back and forth, et cetera. The classified document situation in and of itself usually means even with a, a you know, straight up judge and, uh, and a straightforward case pushes things many months. 
The most telling thing about Cannon is in short order, she's going to get pretrial motions that by and large, I think, are, are really poor on Trump's part with one exception. But they will be trying to use them for delay, evidentiary hearings, or can we rebrief this or that? Even a, an honest judge would have trouble pushing back on that. You have to really control your courtroom and there's this sort of risk latent in there that if you don't give us this more time, you're violating our due process rights, Judge. So anyway, I think they get a, 11 months for starters and six more months, especially with a third defendant. I think the odds are that a skillful defense attorney can get there. And they he, by now, by the way, actually has a couple skillful defense attorneys. That leaves January 6th, and we'll know more next week. I think Laura has spoken to this several times. That is, I think, the best chance for that and maybe Manhattan, depending on what you think of it, for a quick trial before November. And in particular, you have judges in D.C. who are really familiar with Donald Trump and January 6th cases who are have shown real impatience with some of the dilatory tactics. And you have a court of appeals above them that also has been willing to push through very quickly to keep Trump from delaying things. That combined with a desire to really do it with dispatch makes it, to me, the most likely. And I think, by the way, that's a real reason why everyone. We still haven't seen exactly what the theory of the three charges are, but we know one of them is not insurrection, which I think would have given rise to a lot of legal issues, delays, and the like. I think Smith is, in fact, focused on speed and that the D.C. case will be the best way to get it. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Sandra Park, a senior attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project. At the ACLU, we believe everyone deserves equal access to safe and stable housing. Fair housing is a civil rights issue because it's fundamental to creating a more just society. Where we live is not just an address. It's central to all of life's opportunities what services, healthcare, jobs, schools, and transportation we can access, and where we can build community with our families. The ACLU is working to reduce mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities that disproportionately impact Black women renters and their families and restore important housing protections to expand equal access to housing opportunities for everyone. To learn more about our efforts to ensure everyone has equal access to safe and stable housing, visit aclu.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. In today's spirited debate, we peek behind the wine label to see who lays claim to the best Chardonnay, California or Burgundy, France. As we've touched on before, wines from the U.S. are classified by the grape, while French wines are classified by the region. In France, the region of Burgundy produces some of the finest Chardonnays known as white Burgundies, which are almost always made from Chardonnay grapes. To put it simply, when you see a white wine from Burgundy, you know it's a Chardonnay. 
The cooler weather and cloud cover in Burgundy creates wines that have less of the rich fruit flavors you might find in a California Chardonnay. But what white Burgundies lack in fruitiness, they make up for in highly aromatic and complex flavors that range from tropical notes and crisp green apples to fresh jasmine and exotic spices. And you don't have to book a flight to France to taste them either. Just swing into your local Total Wine & More and ask one of our guides for a tour of our white Burgundies at a great value. Swinging over to California Chardonnays, you'll notice that they tend to be rich, full-bodied whites that have undergone malolactic fermentation and heavier doses of new oak. But that's actually a great thing because it helps to create a creamy, buttery feel and flavors of butterscotch, vanilla, and ripe tropical fruits with medium acidity, which make for an ideal bottle. So when the mood calls for Chardonnay and you're torn between California and Burgundy, come talk to our guides at Total Wine & More, where it's always easy to meet in the middle and grab a bottle of each. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. All right, let's move down from where everyone was looking in D.C., and we can move down south now to Mar-a-Lago. One of the things Judge Cannon did was say, we're going to have this case in Fort Pierce. I think it hasn't, the prospect of having a Miami-based Jury pool hasn't been eliminated, but it seems unlikely to me. People are going to have to schlep up, as they say in Miami, every every right. day. Tell us a little bit about Fort Pierce, the jury pool there, and what it may be augurs for the possibility of a hung jury. I, I'm just going to say this. It's not the most MAGA area of the state, but it's not far down the list. This is a county that Martin County gave Trump 62% of the vote in 2020 he can expect a jury pool there and by the way DeSantis did even better in there this in the last year uh, it is a very red part of the state it's not the reddest because there are some places that are that are crazier but it's going to be very tough to find a jury pool there where at least one of the magas hasn't learned what we call the trick and the trick is they love to play with pollsters. They love to play with juries. They love to play when they're asked a question in a focus group. They love to play pretend and then spring it and say, ha ha, I tricked the man again. And I'm sure these are going to be very sophisticated people picking the jury from the DOJ or from the, you know, but that is a red place. It is not African-American like Miami or Hispanic like Miami. It is pretty white. It is pretty affluent. It is very Trumpy. Just imagine boat parades with million dollar boats that's Martin County and so I don't I am deeply concerned that that you've got a jury pool there coming to a Trump case who if they haven't made up their minds they're going to be inclined to at least have lived in enough of that Fox News talk radio bubble that there will be a a high hill to climb and some built-in sympathies at the very least yeah, and combining that with timing, if by chance, say, it is a hung jury, I think it's certain that unless Trump or a Republican wins, the DOJ will retry the case. But in the short term, Trump would proclaim it as a victory and again, just going into the election. Let me ask as a sort of closeout question of all of this, another sort of more high level or reflective question. We're all assuming and this is, you know, implicit in Greg's question, you know, we got to race the clock so that there is a trial that at least the American people, you know, pro, uh, undecided and con will see is, is the evidence here, whether Trump's been a judge to be a criminal or not. 
at least at the charging level, every time it's happened, it doesn't seem to have dented his support. And indeed, vis-a-vis the other Republican candidates, it's only seen to help it. Does everyone agree with, and I don't mean to load the question at all, what do you think about the um, conventional wisdom that for the election and the political choice ahead, it's really, really, really important that some criminal trial occur before November 2024. I don't really necessarily think it's all that important for the purposes of the general election or even the primary. It seems to me that the dynamic that's taken hold is that the more attention that's paid to Trump's criminal problems, the less oxygen there is for the other candidates, especially DeSantis. And with DeSantis trying to break through as some sort of MAGA anti-establishment guy, you really can't top being, you know, prosecuted by the deep state. I mean, that's <laughs> right, but, yeah. right? It is the greatest credential, right? Yeah, right, exactly. It's, it's like, there's no way, I mean, you know, DeSantis goes out there and says, Disney's coming out, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I won't back down, right? Right. But he's like, you know, Trump just makes fun of that, right? Like, I mean, he has literally made fun of it a number of times and pointed to like the areas where DeSantis is actually running into trouble with Disney. But so I've never really been quite certain how the Republican base sees this stuff. It seems more to me like an oxygen question, right? And so, by the way, I should probably say that if the Mar-a-Lago trial really does get going in the spring, I think that's very bad news for the other Republican candidates. Yeah, but let me do, just factor in. I'll just say it's not going to be in the spring. I mean, I think it's very, very likely by the time there's a trial, if there's a trial, he will have sewn up the nomination. And, and that, so that speaks, I think, to your dynamic. He's going to have the nomination in the bag in February. It'll be over in February. On the one hand, I think... Um, it might not be the worst thing in the world for Jack Smith to have added a, in terms of the timing of a trial in Mar-a-Lago, that there's already thoughts it might not go as currently scheduled in May. To now add that third person, you've got the SEPA, of course, the classified information statute that talks about what needs to happen to even present things and everyone getting, remember how long it took Walt Nada to get council, local council right. to be able to even get a rain that remind people of the delays that were there. There is, and there's always that looming notion of, will I have a jury with an appetite for objectivity in this jurisdiction? You compare that to say, and you mentioned this already in part, the familiarity of the DC judges to say a Donald Trump, and you could foresee a speedier trial even occurring prior to the Mar-a-Lago case, because there might not be the same concerns of the classified information and beyond that would have delayed arguably all these things. And it's a jury that might be viewed, at least politically, as more acceptable to say the prosecution. So I'm not entirely convinced that a document, I mean, the document case would be the first one to go between that and January 6th. But having said that, there's still this idea of, remember, we in a way saw a trial related to January 6th for Donald Trump. It was an impeachment. And I do wonder if one of the reasons it is not being capitalized and seized by his RNC opponents and hopefuls is because of how that played out, how politically it did not move a needle and how it made people dig their heels in in different ways. So um, I am almost baffled by who, and I talk to strategists all the time and try to pick their brains on this very issue, 
who had on their bingo card that there would be a candidate that was going against your candidate that was twice impeached, maybe and twice indicted, maybe a third time, and you can't even use it. Like you, that, you can't even touch that. You can't touch it. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that makes you think you're in la-la land about all these things. And finally, I think it is important, whether you're a Republican or Democrat or part of the no labels or whatever it might be in independence and beyond, I think the prospect of either dealing with trials or sweeping them under the rug really just upends that phrase of no one above the law. I mean, at that, if, if, the, if the case is that we don't even touch it because someone's a candidate, I do wonder, then what is to stop anyone from announcing just for the prospect right. of saying, look, this will always be the case. And so I scratch my head literally and figuratively wondering about the timing of all these things, keeping in mind that we're not supposed to consider politics in the Justice Department. It's not supposed to. At that point, doesn't it become with you know, political favor at that point, if we're concerned about the timeline of an election outside of that already window of the guideline that says, don't put your thumb on the scale here. That's really been one way that this whole thing is really in, in, in like walking into a fun house, a house of mirrors, right? The entire debate is unfolding in a place that's completely opposite from reality, right? The debate is, oh, you know, prosecuting Trump will politicize things, talking about you know, if you do it now, it'll politicize things when, in fact, if the Justice Department makes its decisions around the presidential calendar and around the fact that he's a candidate, that's what politicizes the Justice Department's decision making to a much greater degree. I think they're in a terrible box because I rarely take the devil's advocate side of Donald Trump, but prosecuting him during the presidential campaign, there will be a disruption in our political system much broader than we've ever seen before, if that happens. And on the other hand, as Greg's exactly right, if they drop this, you know, and he gets to be, you know, guilty as sin, free as a bird, that I think is equally damaging to the country and to our political world. Because again, as Laura said, you know, maybe they just, people just say, I'm going to run for president. You know, it's not that expensive to file to run for president. You pick a couple of states, you could say it. And if that becomes a legal shield for people, yeah, that's a, that's a weird and dangerous spot. So say it, Rick, say it, announce your candidacy, <laughs> say it, say it, Rick Wilson, pick your cities. <laughs> my only promise to the American people is that my reign will be brief and cruel. <laughs> <laughs> you want to talk Turkey? How about Kazakhstan? All right. <laughs> you know, I think we veered more into the political framework here, and I was really interested by Greg, your column from this last week. I, I think we've already talked about the decision being based uh, in the last election on on one six, but also Dobbs. So one doesn't see big moves in polls, it seems to me, too often. And you've gotten in, you know indications are written about what seems to be a pretty dramatic shift in the electorate overall for abortion, but in particular for younger voters on four different textbook issues, guns and government service and same-sex marriages and the like. Can you just talk about that? Because it's, you know, everything we're talking about with Trump is always at a knife's edge that he somehow gets over. But this, this is one concrete thing that it seems to me makes things even more challenging for him. Yeah, I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, Politico had a very good piece that sort of zeroed in on the effect of, of college towns in some of these elections, most recently the shocker in Wisconsin, where the towns really came out in a big way. 
Uh, you guys remember that? I mean, that that was really it was a ten mm-hmm. point race, and and I don't think we've seen a ten point race in Wisconsin in a while. I could be wrong about that, but so what what we did is we asked Harvard Youth Poll, which is really one of the top polls on young voters. They they poll relentlessly yeah. on voters from eighteen to twenty nine. We asked them to run the numbers annually in their spring polls for the last, I guess, around a dozen years on all these issues on climate change. Should government do more on climate? Should government provide basic necessities like food and shelter, which is like a safety net question? And the other two you mentioned, gay rights. And then the, the, we also got some numbers on abortion, too, from another pollster. And, and the trend was really kind of shocking. In the last dozen years among voters 18 to 29, you know, we're not talking about the same people. We're talking about the pool of 18 to 29-year-olds in each year, right? So... It has really, really, all of them have gone up in a progressive direction, every one of these issues without fail. And on abortion, 69% of voters aged 18 to 29 say abortion should be legal most or all the time. And that's a pretty stunning number. And, And look, let's keep in mind that you've got these Republican legislatures really barreling down the road in a really reactionary direction and getting lots of national attention for it, right? That's another dynamic that I think is problematic for Trump, which is all these things that come out of these Republican legislatures, whether it's, you know, some novel being banned or the family of a trans kid having to drive eight hours for treatment or, you know, people having to cross state lines for reproductive care. All these things are making national news. And Trump is aligned with that section of the Republican Party very deeply in the minds of young voters. In fact, Harvard's polling, Harvard Youth Poll's polling, showed a real acceleration in a a progressive direction on these issues after Trump was inaugurated. Look, obviously, the Republicans are aware of this. Where do they go? What's the strategy, Rick, or Laura, for the party to try to counteract. It seems as long as they're with Trump, they're in MAGA land. As long as they're in MAGA land, how do they get out of this box? And this strikes me as like a several percentage point box, which is enormous, no? I've been doing politics since 1988. I right out of college, you know, um, and I have probably consumed, I don't know, I've probably ordered up and paid for uh, over 1,500 polls, maybe more. I am a consumer of polling information, focus group information at, at scale. Done it my whole career. I have seen two events in American political life that cataclysmically moved political numbers. The first was 9-11, and Dobbs puts that in the shade. Dobbs blew a giant hole in the Republican women vote and in younger voters that they don't have a solution for and they recognize inside the Republican Party the disastrous level of damage it's done. So their philosophy is, as long as we can hold these majorities, we're going to go as far out on the cliff as we can. We're going to race as far out to the right as we can. That's why you saw a six-week abortion bans being passed in Florida. Right. That's why you saw the criminalization of doctors even mentioning Plan B. That's why you've seen all these things, because they recognize that they broke their coalition in the general election cycle. It's much harder now to pull Democrats across the line. And our models over time, and I've done this, like I said, a long time, between 15 and 18% of Republican men are pro-choice, either somewhat or very. 
Okay, between 22 and 25 percent of Republican women are pro-choice. Again, between somewhat or very. Now, those numbers are probably a little low because of some polling effects and socially desirable response effects. But those people all said, "Oh crap." We thought they were joking about this. We thought this was just a campaign thing for the evangelicals, but it's not. It's the reality of the core of the Republican social policy. The damage it has done to them politically has yet to be fully realized. It is it is coming. It is coming in hot. Laura, you know, you're not a consumer of polling in the same, but you've lived this every day since the Dobbs decision. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you feel it kind of on the ground, as it were, to the same degree that Greg and, and Rick identified as a, a truly dramatic event in American political life? I do think it's a truly dramatic event, and for many of the reasons they've suggested, but also because I think it has demonstrated the fallacy of precedent. It has demonstrated for many people, as we talk about one's faith in our institutions and will you hold the line, so to speak, people are going back in their heads and already realizing the process of confirming a Supreme Court nominee is inherently political, although they're supposed to be the apolitical apex, right? But they're going back in their minds all the moments when they were told and listened and, oh, no, I will respect this. And, of course, here's the law of the land and I respect precedent in all the different ways. And then they hear the phrases and and discussions about how the Supreme Court is so selective about the kinds of cases they will take because they don't want to repeat themselves. They only want to wade into true controversies. They don't want to be swayed by the politics of the world or anything else, and that they're kind of above it all. Unlike, you know, the sort of mud rolling other branches of government. And they're going back and seeing all these, and they're hearing arguments that are made and forum shopping and the attempts and reattempts to get issues that the Supreme Court has decided recently compared to other cases, and they're hearing it be before them again. And they're hearing the court weigh in and in some instances contort themselves in pretzels and the justices to try to make sense of why they're saying this now, riddled with parts of the opinion that say things like, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, although I'm saying this, don't think I'm, you know, obviously opening the Pandora's box I'm opening. I want you to ignore everything over there. So I think it it looks like that as Rick and Greg were discussing It has fundamentally changed a lot of things, but it's also changed the way people respect the court and not just because of the outcome for those who believe that abortion as 69% you talked about, Greg, should be legal, but also because they're not buying it any longer. They're not buying the fact that, you know, there is a apolitical entity in a government structure and that will lead to further consequences, I think, in terms of whether there'll be times when people just stop wanting to abide by the Supreme Court and see it. I mean, it only exists as this precedent generator because people will follow the precedent. But then look at places like Alabama, where the Supreme Court says, I want you to have district maps that reflect the constitutionality that we talk about. And they go, thanks for that. Thanks for your suggestion. Right. Yeah. That's cute. You know? (laughs) That's really, really interesting. I would just add one point for young voters, too. Another reason that they might not, you know, buy it, as, as you said, I think really smartly, is that they don't really have sort of clear memories of the liberal court of the middle of the 20th century in the same way that, you know, maybe we do. 
or the same sense of the importance of, of those events. And so all they've seen is this kind of radical right-wing court. And all they've seen is a Republican Party that elects people like Trump. And, and all they've seen is like, you know, Newt Gingrich onwards. And so they probably, I, I'm not saying that I've seen numbers along these lines, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if they do show this. It'd be interesting to check into. But, you know, they understand the court probably as something aligned with the radical right in a way that I think older voters just don't see. Man, we've opened some really big boxes this last hour. But as Rick says, I mean, I think this is the sort of stuff we'll be talking through and working through for the next year, really. We are for now out of time on what's been a great discussion. We just have one more minute for our final feature of Five Words or Fewer, where we take a question from a listener, and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And it derives from this week's story in Washington, where a former military officer turned whistleblower told House lawmakers that Congress is being kept in the dark about unidentified anomalous phenomena known as UAPs or UFOs, and that the executive branch has withheld information about these objects for years. So our question is, UFOs, fact or fiction? Five words or fewer, please. Didn't see them at Groom Lake. <laughs> it's six, but I, I, look, I'm, I'm going to take the contraction. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Where is Tommy Lee Jones? <laughs> Zap! <laughs> Very good. Can I say this? I have no friggin' idea. <laughs> Very good. And I'm going with real, but not really real. <laughs> we are out of time. Thank you very much to Laura, Greg, and Rick. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we are posting full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Michael Abramowitz, president of the Freedom House, about recent trends of freedom worldwide and the ways in which some U.S. businesses contribute to the erosion of freedom around the world. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to talkingfeds.com slash contact, whether they're for talking five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez. Catherine Devine is our associate producer. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers and production assistants by David Littman, Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turabailu, and Kalena Tano. 
Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.